0: We're off to a great start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, good morning. Uh, My name is Brendan Norton. I am a pastoral intern here at King of Grace Church, Uh, and I am here to uh, bring you God's Word today. Uh, But before we dive into God's Word, I'd like to tell you a story. So back in the early 1900s, there was a farmer from southern Missouri he was a uh, kind of wiry guy, uh, not very good at sports, not athletic. He had very poor eyesight, had to wear glasses, uh, loved to read. My type of guy. I like this guy. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, just as he, he grew up, he, he even referred to himself, you know, according to those standards of masculinity back then, as a sissy people didn't look at him as, as being much of anything. Um, so, you know, he's a farmer uh, and he graduates high school and he decides he wants to join the military. And so he does and he actually gets promoted to a captain, uh, at which point he takes over an artillery unit known as Battery D. And Battery D uh, was this really rough and tumble crew of uh, Irish and German immigrants who these were all sportsmen, these were all strong, athletic men, and when they saw this uh, rather unimpressive farmer come to take over the unit, they figured he's not going to last. You know, there's nothing going for this guy. Now, uh, this is early 1900s, and uh, at this stage, now he's a captain, um, the United States enters World War I, um, and... This is a point now where uh, we see the evaluation that his men had of him is going to be proven completely wrong. Um, The first time that Battery D was in combat, all of the men started panicking and and running away as artillery shells are falling down. And this young farmer uh, who doesn't have anything about him that you'd think is impressive, refuses to flee, stands his ground while shells are exploding everywhere and he rallies his men to return fire um, and uh, participate in the battle, which he does successfully. Um, Over the course of the war, he wins not just the obedience of uh, his men, but their respect and their love. Uh, He would always put their needs first. If there was a long march, he would make sure that they were adequately provisioned, that they had uh, enough rest on their way. And by the war's end, Uh, and I think this is the only uh, combat unit in World War I to say this, he did not lose a single soldier. Every single man in Battery D who was with this farmer came back home. And now you're probably wondering, who is this farmer? uh, Who am I talking about? And this farmer, this unimpressive man who no one thought could be a leader, uh, his name was Harry S. Truman, And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he uh, went on to become president of the United States, uh, led the country through the end of World War II, um, and led the country in the Korean War. And so why do I tell you this story? Why do I bring this up? Well, what we're going to find in our passage today is that we can judge leadership, we can judge uh, maturity, by very human standards, um, by standards of appearance, by standards of culture, when in reality, uh, as we're going to find with the Apostle Paul, true Christian leadership uh, is worth is not in those things. Its worth is in the power God gives to it. Its worth is in the mercy that is shown through it. And its worth is in recognizing its authority given to it by God. And so now... Um, if you will, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10, 2 chap- Corinthians chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, today, just thank you for this opportunity to share your word. And I pray, uh, Lord, that you would empower um, what I say to touch hearts, to encourage, um, and ultimately to bring everyone here closer to you. And we just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Corinthians 10, uh, (laughs) very long passage today. It's a whole chapter, um, so I will just go ahead and read through it. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some, who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes, If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare classify or or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, For we were the first to come uh, all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Now, uh, pretty long passage, uh (coughs) so we're going to go somewhat quickly through it. um, But before we actually dive into explaining the passage, there's kind of an important little bit of uh, technical information we have to take care of. So uh, last week, we had a sermon from... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and that passage ends, that chapter ends with Paul saying, thank God for his indescribable gift or inexpressible gift. Uh, As we've gone through this series, we've seen that 1 Corinthians 1 through 9 has been very encouraging. It's been very conciliatory to the Corinthians. We know that 1 Corinthians itself was a hard letter for them to read, but now we're we're going through 2 uh, Corinthians. Everything is a little more cheerful, a little more encouraging. But all of a sudden, we get to chapter 10, and everything starts to change. The tone shifts very dramatically uh, from one of encouragement to one of defensiveness. It's as if I was talking to one of you and said, You know, uh, I just really appreciate you, Kelly. Uh, I love uh, all the things that you do. Um, and by the way, how dare you! <laughs> It's a little jarring. (laughs) It's a little confusing. Uh, And some have viewed uh, this section, and this section really goes from chapter 10 to 13, as so shocking, so jarring that they think it's not even part of 2 Corinthians. They think it's a different letter that Paul wrote and that someone just stitched it together into this part of 2 Corinthians. And once they start going down that uh, kind of rabbit hole, they start finding other areas of Second Corinthians that maybe don't fit the perceived tone. So parts of chapter 7, also not part of the original letter. Uh, parts of chapter 2, not part of the original letter. Part of chapter 8, probably not even from Paul. It's from Qumran material, Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, in the end, you kind of have a hodgepodge letter uh, that someone was very aggressive with cut and paste and creating, um, and that's what we have as 2 Corinthians. So I am not of the opinion that 2 Corinthians is a hodgepodge of letters or verses or anything like that. Um, I think that 2 Corinthians is one whole letter written by Paul. Um, And the importance of this is I want you to have confidence in your Bible. I want you to have confidence that when you read it, you're not just reading uh, some, you know, blender of information that just came out in this form. Uh, this is intentional. This is uh, has integrity. This is the way that Paul authored it, and this is the way that God intended it. And so saying that, I do have to explain why I think Second Corinthians, even this defensive section, is part of the original letter. So first off, I'll say this. Uh, we have all sorts of manuscripts, hundreds of manuscripts, ancient writings, or copies of 2 Corinthians, um, from the ancient world, and none of them are missing this section. None of them have this section put in some other place or any of the other sections I mentioned. It's all, all of them are the way that we have our Second Corinthians, chapters one through 13, same order, same deal. And that's important because there are other uh, parts of scripture um, that we see don't fit into this pattern, like the story of the adulterous woman in John Many scholars today don't think that that's part of John originally because we have manuscripts that have it in a different position. They have manuscripts of John that don't even have the story. We have manuscripts of Luke that for some reason have this story from John. So we know that that is not original. But when it comes to 2 Corinthians, that's not the case. It's all one consistent piece. Secondly, um, how many of you have kids? I don't think you have kids. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, or even friends. I'm sure we all have friends. um, If you had to confront someone, uh, how many of you would start off maybe mentioning some good things, some things you appreciate about the person, your child, your friend, and then only after that going into some of the more difficult stuff? Does that sound kind of like a reasonable strategy? Well, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. Chapters 1 through 9, he's been very encouraging, very conciliatory, but he has to address the problems that we're going to see. And so in so doing, we find that the tone shifts, but it's very intentional. So again, this has been kind of a uh, little aside, but I think it's important because, again, I want you to have confidence in your Bible. I want you to have confidence uh, that if you hear these alternative theories of authorship or origin, that you know, well, wait a minute, this is God's word, this is authoritative for my life, and this is something I can trust. So I pray that uh, this little aside has done that for you. All right, so now, moving on to the letter itself, um, verses one through six, or there is the outline. uh, Christian leadership relies on divine resources. So a little more background of 2 Corinthians, this particular passage. uh, Evidently, at some point after Paul had visited Corinth, uh, a group of apostles came into the city and started preaching their own doctrines, started uh, trying to take the Corinthians away from the ministry of Paul. um, And these guys just didn't act uh, in a way consistent with Uh, Their confession of Christ, they didn't believe in a way that was consistent with that confession. And what we learn about them is that these people were very judgmental insofar as they compared themselves to Paul. They found Paul to be basically a worthless person. um, So they were very boastful. They were very keen to put Paul down. Um, We're going to find out later, not in this sermon or this chapter, but in chapter 12, Uh, They placed a very high premium on the miraculous, on visions. Those things uh, somehow would validate what they were doing. um, So they placed a high premium on that. Um, And in all of this, again, they were trying to turn the Corinthians against Paul. So Paul, as he enters into uh, this chapter, the first thing we're going to see him say is that he is entreating the Corinthians. He is asking the Corinthians, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, uh, in doing this, he's, he's setting up what he's going to say. Uh, he is making an appeal to them, not by his authority as an apostle, uh, which he could do. He's not making an appeal to them by his power of judgment, but he's making an appeal to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Um, In referencing this right off the bat, we can infer this is one of the things that the false apostles were accusing him of or criticizing him for, is that he was meek, is that he was gentle. He wasn't this come in and take charge kind of leader, um, but he was one that exemplified the qualities of Christ, which weren't the qualities of ancient Greek culture. And this made him unfit for ministry. Furthermore, and we're going to see this in the later section, um, Paul says that he is uh, weighty in his letters. He's bold when he is away, um, but he is, is weak and lowly when he's with them. Um, another part of this criticism of him is that when he was writing letters, he was very forceful. He was very bold. He was very um, take charge in that sense. But once he actually got to Corinth, he was meek, he was gentle. He uh, was a little bit uh, less than what they expected based on what he wrote. And so uh, they judged him for this. They judged him, again, as being unfit for his apostleship. But Paul isn't going to take this lying down. Paul knows how important it is to uh, win the Corinthians back, so to speak, to show them that he is a true apostle, to defend himself, not for the sake of himself, but for the sake of the gospel. And so what he says is that he does not, though he lives in the flesh, he does not conduct himself according to the flesh. Uh, What he's doing is he's doing a play on words of that word flesh. Um, In the first instance, he's saying, yes, I conduct myself in the flesh. I have a body, I'm a human, I conduct myself in a human manner. But the way that I wage war, the way that I combat, the way that I lead is not fleshly. It's not according to human standards. It's not according to the human means of argumentation. And so now he goes into this metaphor of siege warfare. He talks about, uh, uh, excuse me, Having weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh, not of human standards, not of human means, but having divine power. Uh, Through this divine power, he destroys strongholds, um, destroys arguments against the knowledge of God, and takes thoughts captive in obedience to Christ, and that he is ready to punish disobedience. So he's using this metaphor of siege language, and what he's trying to get across with this is again he's been criticized by these false apostles they're criticizing him for his demeanor they're criticizing him for his meekness and gentleness but rather than criticizing them in the same way uh, rather than finding something to nitpick them about attacking them based off of their appearance or their ability to speak he is saying that he relies on divine means in his leadership, he relies upon divine means, divine weapons to combat his opponents. And so, again, this is uh, this is a metaphor of siege warfare. He's saying he's combating them. He's saying he's defeating them. Um, you know, ancient siege warfare, you would have siege weapons that would destroy the wall. Uh, then you would come in um, and you would take captive anyone who is inside of the city. And that's exactly what Paul is saying he's going to do. But again, the key here is that he's not doing this by the means, the human standards, the human methods that these false apostles are using, but he's advocating for himself in the gospel. He's combating them with divine means. And so for us today, we're not necessarily dealing with false apostles. uh, Maybe some of you are, I don't know. Uh, generally not but many of us um, whether in Christian ministry or, or some type of leadership in our lives we run into conflict um, we run into criticism but when we run into those things in taking this example from Paul we're not to conduct ourselves according to the fleshly ways of human standards so as an example I um, I gave a lot of thought to this about how our society typically argues, how our society typically gets into conflict, and and what we do in that. And so there are three things that I think characterize our contemporary fleshly means of argumentation of leadership. And one of those is shaming. Um, I'm sure you have heard of some celebrity or – politician who said something a little off color or maybe said something on Facebook and all of a sudden a mob descends on them and starts publicly shaming them. uh, That's one method that our culture uses. Another method is uh, what's called owning someone. um, There's a little slang for you. and basically to own someone is to defeat someone in an argument in a way that humiliates them and demeans them. Um, if you go into YouTube and type in owning someone or just owning, you'll find videos of conservative owns the libs, uh, atheist owns the Christian, Muslim owns the insert whatever here, uh, and so forth. There's this uh, this joy, there's this excitement in humiliating and demeaning someone in an argument. So that's a second uh, aspect of our cultural argumentation. And finally, and kind of part of all of this is there's a very strong vindictiveness. um, If someone on your side, your team, so forth or so on is shamed or owned or whatever, um, there's a vindictiveness where you then want to do that to someone on the other team. You want to own or shame or humiliate or demean someone on the other side. And that's unfortunately the way that the world conducts itself in argument. uh, That's the way it conducts itself in leadership, um, looking at politicians, looking at uh, people in leadership. And sadly, that's something that I've seen Christians do as well. um, Christian leaders, Christian uh, influencers, so to speak. But We have to remember, we have to look at the example of Paul and Paul is a a leader par excellence. He is uh, a mature Christian. He does not rely on those cultural means of argumentation, those cultural ways of leading people. He instead relies on the power of God to demonstrate the truth of the gospel and to change hearts of his opponents. He's not going to stoop down to the level of culture he's not going to start comparing himself with these false apostles on the criteria that they have uh, and he's certainly not going to stoop down to the arguments that we would have today shaming owning whatever you want to call it and so as we conduct ourselves in uh, society today as we are ambassadors to christ as we're leaders in whatever uh, sphere god has given us uh, we have to resist the urge conduct ourselves that way instead rely on God because he has the power um, to change the minds of our opponents um, and to give us a good godly defense and so that's the first section we have and now moving on to verses 7 through 11 excuse me we're going to find another aspect of Paul and Christian leadership and What we're going to find is that Paul is able to judge. He's able to met out punishment, but he's reluctant to do so, and that is very important. So uh, going into verse 7, Paul says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Paul is uh, saying to the Corinthians, look look what's in front of you. These false apostles are saying that I'm not an apostle. But if you look around you, the reason your Christian community exists is because of my ministry to you. Um, If someone is going to say that he is Christ, let them know that I'm also of Christ because you're the evidence of that. So Paul is continuing his defense, continuing his argument. uh, And he goes on to say, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which God gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed, for I do not want to be frightening you with my letters. Paul now uh, transitions to talking about the nature of his authority, and what he says is that the authority God has given him is for building the Corinthians up. It's not for destroying them. Paul recognizes that unlike, say, you know, the prophet Jeremiah, who God gave him a ministry of building up and tearing down, um, encouraging and then, you know, divine wrath judgment. Um, Paul has a ministry of building up. Paul has a ministry of encouragement to the Corinthians. These are God's very flawed spiritual children, but these are the people that Paul has given himself to, and he loves them, and he doesn't want to frighten them. He said harsh things in his letters in 1 Corinthians He's meted out a degree of judgment on some, uh, and he's certainly spoken in a very uh, bold manner. But that's not his aim. His aim isn't to focus purely on the disciplinary, to focus p- purely on those difficult things, but ultimately to encourage. So he wants to let them know, I am, uh, I am not trying to frighten you with my letters. I'm trying to encourage. And this is important, and this gets to the point of the passage, is that Paul is saying to them, he's not eager to punish. He's not eager to met out judgment against them. Paul loves them. Paul has a ministry to build them up. And Paul doesn't want to have to be forced to use drastic measures. And this is very much a characteristic not just of Paul, not just of Christian leadership, but it's at the very heartbeat of God himself. Now, we know that God has wrath. We know that God hates sin. We know that God will punish sin. But that is not something that grants him a sadistic pleasure. That is not what he is out in the world to do ultimately. It says in Ezekiel 33, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God takes pleasure in repentance. God takes pleasure in people turning away from sin and is only reluctantly willing to judge. He is able to judge. He will judge. He will be consistent with his character in metting out that judgment. But it's not something he derives pleasure from. It's not something that God is excited about in the same way that he's excited about mercy, the same way he's excited about forgiveness. And so Paul is saying much the same about himself. He is reluctant to met out punishment, but he is able and willing to do so if they force him to. And so that's what we see in verse 10. Uh, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. We've seen the reluctance of Paul to judge in uh, the preceding verse, but here Paul is being firm. If this behavior continues, if these false apostles continue in their statements, I will judge, I will bring punishment that but again that is not the point of paul's ministry that is not the part that excites him that is the part that he will do uh, because it is necessary but it is not the part that he does joyfully and so uh, restating the point paul demonstrates that christian leadership is reluctant but able to judge and so to give you an example of this um I went to North Point Bible College right across the street and uh, while I was there, we had RAs and weren't exactly like normal college RAs. They uh, kind of enforced the rules. We had a lot of rules and uh, one of them was we had to clea- keep a really clean room. Uh, and so one day a week they'd come when we weren't there and inspect our room. And if we got like three messy things on it, uh, we'd get fined. And There were some RAs who were very zealous about finding people um, and finding reasons (laughs) uh, to mark us off for, you know, uncleanliness or whatever. Um, Not a huge fan of that. But there was one RA, uh, and his name was Richard Brooks, and he had a very different philosophy. Um, He was very reluctant to fine anyone. he understood that the whole purpose of of this system was just to encourage some discipline, some cleanliness. um, And so he wasn't out to get anybody. He didn't get his jollies from finding people. And only under very drastic circumstances would he actually find someone. Like if someone left a jar of milk under their bed, which someone did, (laughs) he would find them in that case, but... You know, if your desk was messy with papers because you were studying, he understood. And so this is the kind of attitude that Paul has for the Corinthians. He understands his role is to encourage. He understands his role is to help and support. And only reluctantly under these drastic circumstances, which the false apostles are forcing him into, is he going to judge. So again, Christian leadership, as exemplified by Paul, is able to judge, but it's reluctant to do so. It focuses on mercy, but will judge if necessary. So as I've already asked, some of you are parents. Some of you um, are bosses. Some of you um, have leadership in different uh, realms of your life. And so if you find yourself enjoying the judgment part of that authority, more than the encouragement part, this might be a good inducement to change. This might be a good encouragement to maybe rebalance those scales, to view supporting and encouraging and showing mercy to your children, employees, uh, whatever it may be, um, as the most important part of your job and only reluctantly bringing down um, that judgment So maybe, again, if if that's you, maybe consider changing that. Um, And if not, then that's fine. All right, we're on a roll. We're going through this chapter. So now we move to verses 12 through 18. um, And this is the end of the chapter. And Paul has just a little more to say about these false apostles. And what he's going to say is going to help us recognize that Uh, Good Christian leadership recognizes its own sphere of authority. It recognizes its limits and its bounds and its authority within those bounds. So something I've mentioned before about these false apostles is that they had come to Corinth after Paul had visited. Um, They weren't there originally. um, They may have come from Judea. They may have come from a different province. um, But they weren't originally there when Paul was there. And what they've done since Paul has gone is, again, try to influence these Corinthians um, to turn them against Paul, to come to their side, to follow them, um, to be their followers instead of followers of Paul and ultimately followers of Christ. And so as Paul uh, is ending this chapter, he just wants to address this issue, this issue that they are Newcomers to this situation that they are people who weren't there originally, but have now come and are trying to assert authority. Uh, So Paul, uh, first off, he says just about these false apostles um, that he's not going to compare himself with them um, as they have been comparing themselves with each other and with Paul uh, because it's foolishness. It shows that they're without understanding. It's a false boasting. But Paul, verse 13, is not going to do what they do. He's not going to boast beyond limits, but he's only going to boast with regards to the area of influence God had assigned him uh, to reach to the Corinthians. Probably one of the main errors of these false apostles, again, is that they've come to Corinth, they've come as newcomers, and they're trying to assert authority. They're trying to boast in the work someone else has done. Paul uh, and Apollos and others are the ones who planted this church. Uh, they're the ones who have given uh, their lives for the sake of the church. They've loved the Corinthians. But now these newcomers show up after everything's said and done, after everything's all built, um, and are now trying to boast that this is their work, to boast that these are their people. And Paul isn't going to have any of this Um Consistently throughout this end section, he says we're not going to boast beyond limits. um, We're not going to boast of work done in someone else's area of influence. Um, Paul, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He is uh, just a great man of God, but he recognizes where his authority is. He recognizes the sphere um, that God has placed him in. And as we see in verse uh, 15, he hopes that sphere increases. He wants to reach uh, to other Gentiles who are not believers to convert them to the gospel. Um, He wants to preach in other lands, but he's not going to boast of the work that others have done. He's not going to interfere with those areas of influence. If he's going to boast, he's going to boast in the Lord. um, He is going to boast in knowing God, he's going to boast in what God has given him and not boast in what God has given someone else, not boast in someone else's territory, someone else's um, sphere. And so Paul is criticizing these false apostles because that's exactly what they've done. They've come into someone else's sphere of authority. They've come into someone else's mission field and they are now asserting themselves as if this is their of ministry as if this is their place of authority. And Paul recognizes that this is wrong because he recognizes that Christian leadership has its own sphere of authority and it recognizes that that authority is confined to that sphere. And so thinking through this uh, maybe as an example, um, imagine you coach a sports team I certainly want to coach a sports team, uh, but maybe you would. And imagine now that someone from a different team, a different coach, suddenly comes into your practice and starts ordering your uh, players around. That that wouldn't make any sense. He's not the coach of the team. He's the coach of a different team. So why is he coming in and doing this? Uh, This is very much what these false apostles had done. They were a coach of a different team, and they are now trying to become the coach of Paul's team. And that's inappropriate because it's the sphere that God had given to Paul. And so as we think through applying this to our own lives, um, you know, we don't have a a sphere of authority like Paul did um, of, you know, a mission to the Gentiles or a whole city or something. But we do have different spheres of authority and relationship and leadership. So many of you, again, are parents. Um, and it would be very inappropriate of me, who is not the chi- the parent of your child, to come in and tell you what to do with your kid. That would be inappropriate of me. Um, I do not own, say, Savior Labs. Paul Parisi does. So it would be inappropriate of me to come into the office and tell Mattia to get me coffee. There you go. (laughs) And so we need to recognize um, just as we lead in whatever sphere God gives us um, that we have our own zone. We have our own lane and that we are not to trespass inappropriately into other people's lanes and other people's sphere. Um, That doesn't mean we can't offer advice or encouragement. um, That's not what Paul is saying. But that directly taking authority over those situations is something that would be inappropriate. And so if we have uh, leadership in any sphere of life, we need to recognize that that is ours and recognize that other spheres belong to other people. And so just wrapping up uh, what we've seen in this passage, um, it's all about leadership. And so the first thing we see is that we're not to preach or argue the gospel and lead in a way that culture does. We're not to um, stoop to the level of culture um, in the way that we conduct ourselves in leadership. Secondly, we see that in Christian leadership, though there is the ability um, and responsibility to judge, it should be done reluctantly. It shouldn't be done as uh, the primary joy we get from leading, whether it's our family or employees or whatnot. There should be a preference for mercy Um, but a firmness to judge if necessary. And finally, whatever leadership sphere we find ourselves in, parents, um, employers, so forth and so on, we recognize that we have a sphere, and that's our sphere, and we don't interfere with the sphere of others. We allow God to do his work through the gifting authority he has given to other believers uh, in whatever sphere that they have. And so now uh, we can transition to Q&A Any questions concerns I think just the general vindictiveness. um, So wanting to, you know, if someone on your team is shamed or owned or whatever, you then want to do the same to someone on the other team. So just kind of that revenge idea.